Our text this morning is Psalm 146, the second reading. This is another psalm traditionally used in the Advent season, and we will make three points. They're there in, in the back of your bulletin. Praise, rulers, restoration. Praise, rulers, and restoration. First then, praise. Psalm 146, the psalm begins with two imperatives, or two commands. The first is general, and it's addressed to all. Praise the Lord. This is, you'll note, how the psalm ends as well. Praise the Lord. In the second imperative, the psalmist speaks to his own soul, his own self, or his own person. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He's commanding... He's rousing himself to praise. We've seen a lot of this in the Psalms. He's talking to himself. And he responds to his own words with two statements of resolve. Two statements that touch the realm of our will. Two statements of fixed determination. He says, I will praise the Lord all of my life. It's a statement about not only will, but about the duration of one's will. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. What's instructive here is that praise, rendering praise to the Lord, is not something that just happens. It's not like loose change. It doesn't just slip out of your mouth. It requires Labor, willing, focused determination. I think we don't think of praise that way. We think that somehow if it doesn't just flow freely, it's inauthentic. But the psalmist doesn't think that. He thinks it requires determination, and not just periodically, but across the whole of our lives. So praise then... We can think of it this way. It's a lot like prayer. It's a lot like scripture reading or the cultivation of Christian discipleship in general. It's a discipline. It's a discipline informed by grace and shaped by grace, but a discipline nonetheless. And and doing it well, rendering praise to God well, requires addressing our own will. And addressing it repeatedly in a sustained manner. I think most of us know this. It requires fighting our lethargy, our inertia, our distractions. In this sense, praise is a form of protest. It's a protest against our native default desire not to sing. Not to vocalize. To sink back into ourselves, not to confess the glory of God. Its praise then is an assault on our own native complacency. And thus, as a discipline seen in this light, it's something one should get better at over time. Right? We should be better both individually, both individually and collectively. 
at singing praise this year than we were last year. Right? We should not be content to say, well, my singing of praise to God is about the same as it was five years ago. You know, it's about, it's about the same. Five, ten, fifteen years, it's been roughly, roughly in the same genre. Nobody likes it when their salary stays the same for 15 years. We, we want incremental improvement. And so we should get better at it because it's a discipline. But we don't think of it this way. We think of it as a sort of magic that either happens or doesn't. And so the way to begin to think about it this way is by consenting, embracing the psalmist's own resolutions here in the text in verse 2. So that's praise. The second thing we want to look at here are the rulers. If we are to properly praise God... There are things that we must not do. There are, if you will, negative presuppositions about that we bring to the discipline of praise. And one of these, in verse 3, is placing our trust in princes. Princes. Notice, when a text moves from praising the Lord to princes... It's telling you that praising the Lord in public is a political act. That to do it well, you cannot be someone who trusts in princes. That the praise of God in the assembly is a public statement of allegiance or trust. It's a political act of the highest framing order, which shapes all other things. It's not a partisan act, but it is an act about who is king and who is Lord. And thus the psalmist can instinctively say, praise the Lord, don't trust princes. He's not working out of a situation where the Lord is up here in some invisible, ethereal realm and princes are ruling in the real world and never the twain shall meet. Israel faced in their life, in their history, Two big temptations. The first one was seduction by pagan gods. And the second, which is the focus here, was entangling political alliances. These are Israel's two big obstacles. And these alliances had the effect of undercutting or eroding the unique status of Yahweh. Right as their king and they as his covenanted people that he had pledged to protect as their warrior king. And the text is worded here generally enough, broadly enough to include even Israel's own kings and rulers, warning Israel, don't even place undue trust in your own kings or your own rulers who certainly failed Israel frequently. So the point of the text is not that rulers are unnecessary, that they don't have a place. The point is that the politics or the wealth and the power of the nobility often become an object of trust, that politics becomes religion. Princes, the psalmist is saying, powers 
are seductive. They radiate a deceptive aura. We're not beyond this. They manipulate the hopes and the aspirations of people. They promise benefits that compete with salvation itself. They make totalizing messianic claims or quasi-messianic claims. And the people of God, the new humanity, the people of the future, you are God's holy nation. And that means you can never identify holy with any earthly power or with any political party. The church can never be an adjunct to any purely secular movement. We serve another king. And in the ancient world, both the church and the Roman world understood the radicalness of them, of this claim. Right? You, you get this in the book of Acts, where the people say, these Christians are asserting that there is another king, namely Jesus. And they understood that that meant that Christians were asserting that in a fundamental way, Caesar is not king. We didn't say, look, there's another invisible spiritual realm where, this, where Jesus is the king, but over here, Caesar's the king. It was understood to be a subversive claim. We serve another king. Jesus is Lord is the primitive Christian confession. It's the radical Christian confession, and it's a political Christian confession. It can still get you killed in many parts of the world. So, as I've cited here before from Richard Newhouse, the first thing about politics is that politics is not the first thing. The first thing about it is that it's not the first thing, and it's not the second thing, it's not even the third thing. So do not put your trust in princes. Because the text says, it goes on to tell us a little bit more about maybe why, because... They are human beings. Literally, they are sons of Adam who cannot, notice this, save. Here the text is explicit. Princes claim to be able to save. They have a whole vocabulary of salvation. Health and education and welfare and defense and homeland security. They defend, they protect, they provide, they renew, they restore, they secure, they educate. It's a secularized vocabulary of shalom. But they cannot save. Because they cannot, they're not, their role does not take the full measure of the human predicament or the human condition. It's an honorable role, to be sure, but it's more humble and limited. But they refuse that constantly, and they speak and they act like rival deities. This is why the Psalms are full of this charge to Israel not to trust princes, because they speak and they act like rival deities. This is why there's so much elation or dejection on the outcome of political elections. When that happens, the role of politics has become outsized in your consciousness. It's too big. And they cannot save, the text says, they cannot save 
because they're creatures in need of salvation, and you cannot give what you do not have. They can't save, more exactly the text is telling us, because they don't have life in themselves. You can see that in the text. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. All their reigns are temporal reigns. All governments are interim governments. All rulers are interim rulers. And so I cite Augustine again. In our civic affairs, we have only two kinds of rulers. Dead ones and dying ones. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. If you're a sports fan, you occasionally hear the injury report. You know, they give injury reports for football games, and they'll occasionally list the player as day-to-day. To which you always want to say, we're all listed as day-to-day, pal. (laughs) Everybody is day-to-day, including rulers, because they don't have life in themselves. So they radiate a kind of deceptive power. Everybody wants to get considered or invited. But they too have the mark of death on themselves. The text says they return to the ground. It's good to think of rulers as animated dust. And the word for ground here is the same word translated human beings Some Bibles says mortal men or sons of Adam. So there's an ironic and frankly macabre wordplay going on with the poet here. The sons of Adam return to their origin, the ground itself. And on that very day, the text says, on that very day, their plans, like themselves, come to nothing. All of these great visions and proposals. Politics is nothing if not the history of dashed hopes and of soaring rhetoric crashing on the rocks of reality. And of many, many broken promises, the state, as one person put it, is the God which regularly fails. And so while we can appreciate their God-given role, this text says we must not trust them. And this is not just a sort of I'm suspicious of the government sort of person. It's a theological kind of uh, trust that's in view here. Because there are deep biblical reasons for this. You know, Madison, in his famous uh, Federalist 51, gets at this. Because he says this. He says, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? That, friends, is a profound theological remark. <laughs> right? When you, when you are talking about government, you are talking about human nature. It reflects what a people or a civilization or society think about the nature of human beings. And he goes on to say, of course, many of you know this famously. He says this, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. 
in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty, Madison says, lies in this. You must first enable the govern, government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. That is the balancing act of government. That's the trick of government, and it's a theological meditation on the nature of what human beings are. And that's what Madison and the framers were trying to solve. I'll leave it to you to decide how well they did. But there are deep theological reasons not to trust. Let me put it another way. It won't be as eloquent as Madison's, Federalist 51. But theologically, it comes down to this. If we ask ourselves, what are rulers? What are princes? What are governments? What do they have that you and I don't have? The answer is they have a monopoly on coercive violence. That's what we give them. We give them the power of the sword so they can tax. They don't ask for your tax dollars, right? They demand them, and they will put you in jail if they don't get them. So they can tax. They can jail. They can expropriate your property if you break the right sets of laws, and they can execute you. Because they have this extraordinary power which we have ceded to them. Namely, they have monopolistic power on violence. And it turns out in the history of the world, when some men give the monopolistic power on violence to other men, the other men don't give it back. They don't sit around saying, you know, we really should reduce the monopolistic power on violence that we have. It turns out it's really hard to keep it tamed and caged. So, we can appreciate the God-given role of rulers. And we must, and we should, but we cannot trust them. And this is not just about some personality quirks. There are deep reasons we don't trust them. Whether they're our guy or they're not our guy, we don't trust them. By contrast, the text says in verse 5, Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. So help, hope, placed in princes will eventually fail. We're to put our trust in the God of Jacob. That's the one who founded the nation of Israel. This one, the text says, is the Lord their God. The I am who I am, the God of the Exodus. He's the God who, unlike princes, is eternally alive. He's the God of the Exodus, the Redeemer, the Savior of Israel. And unlike princes, he is able to save, to deliver Israel from bondage. And this one is also, as we see in verse 6, the Creator. The text says he's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Because this one, this king is creator, redeemer. He has power to save creatures. In other words, he can restore his handiwork. He can take the measure of the human predicament and act. Maker of heaven and earth here means he's the maker of princes. The maker of creatures. It means his spirit never departs. It means he never returns to the ground. It means his reign has no end and he has no successors. It means he elects and is subject to no elections. And so the text sets out this stark contrast. 
This is the one that we confess, that the church has always confessed when she says, I believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And this one, the end of verse 6, says this, He keeps faith forever. It's a marvelous phrase. His plans never come to nothing. He maintains his fidelity. And this brings us to the third point. Restoration. The rest of Psalm 146 is an expansion. It unpacks just how it is. How does God keep faith forever? And here we'll see, Lord willing, hopefully, why this is an Advent text. Verse 7. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. And then from here on out, the name of the Lord, Lord, is used five times, dismissing every other name in the work of saving restoration. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But the Lord frustrates, or he frustrates the ways of the wicked. It's a marvelous picture. It's beautiful of showing us the way that Israel's God, who is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, saves and he heals and he restores. And this restoration is both physical and spiritual because we are body and soul. I'll come back to this in a few minutes. But Salvation then, in its full biblical glory, is about shalom. It is about peace and well-being. It's about the restoration of human flourishing. That's what the gospel is after. It's about the reintegrating what has been disintegrated by sin and death. This is why all of the vocabulary of the Christian faith is essentially political vocabulary. New humanity, new kingdom, new creation. And what we have in this text, and the text piles them up, we have a whole array of allusions to our Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. This is what Jesus did when he appeared. Like father, like son. Yahweh does this, so his son does this. Jesus comes as Yahweh incarnate to do the work of Yahweh. He is how. If you ask this question, how does God keep faith forever? The answer is, Jesus is how God keeps faith forever. Like father, like son. And the signs that are mentioned in the text... They were tied deep in Israel's heart and her consciousness with the appearance of the Messiah. In the Old Testament lesson, which we read this morning from Isaiah 35, that's an example of this. There we read that when the Lord appears, that when he comes to save, the text says the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. This was the hope of Israel, that these signs would appear when Messiah appeared. And then when Jesus, the Messiah, opens his public ministry at Nazareth, in Isaiah, he cites from Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he's anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee or his favor. Jesus is the servant of whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 42 that would open the eyes of the blind, free the captives, release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, this wasn't the first time these kinds of acts had been seen in Israel, though. They expected a fullness, but God had done these sorts of things in the Exodus. What is the Exodus other than a liberation of a, of a people from prison and darkness and bondage? He had done it again in the restoration of the exile. But in Jesus' advent, right, his coming, his ministry is attended by a multiplication of these signs. So the signs that Jesus does are signs that Yahweh keeps faith forever, that the kingdom is at hand. In the deepest humility, Jesus stoops to bear our burdens, right? This this is what he does when he takes on your flesh. Costly, heart-wrenching compassion, he heals. He casts out demons. Weeping, he raises the dead. He opens the eyes of the blind. He provides food. He proclaims the gospel to the poor. He watches over, as the good shepherd, all those on the borders, the marginalized, the father, the widow, the prostitute, the leper, the alien. And he goes and tells his disciples, or the disciples, of John the Baptist, to report back to John and to tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Jesus goes about doing these things, and it's documented not in one place or two places or three places. It's documented throughout the Gospels. And this is rooted... In Yahweh's behavior, his prior behavior for his people at the exodus and at the exile. You can see that, for example, again, another place to see it is Deuteronomy 10. Like father, like son. And so Jesus, his advent, is the sign that Israel's God is present in person, keeping faith forever. This is why our Lord's life is a, is a profusion of healing, liberating, restoring light for broken people, for imprisoned people, for oppressed people, for crushed people, for bowed down people. He is the sign that God's beneficent, restoring kingdom, his reign is indeed at hand and has appeared. He's a reminder. In fact, he is the embodiment of the creator-redeemer who is going to restore the cosmos, set the world right. And so now, we're in a place to say something critical about Jesus' miracles, and it needs to be said. Jesus' works of healing are not arbitrary displays of power, like a kind of spiritual pyrotechnics. Neither is Jesus instituting a general program of faith healing. 
Even Jesus, while he healed many, did not heal all he could have possibly healed. He could go to the pool of Bethesda where there were many blind and lame and paralyzed people and heal only one and leave the others there. It's important that we get this right because if we overread this text, we're going to be bitterly disappointed people. It's not like there was a lottery. Jesus, for some reason, chose to heal one person there. And remember this. After all, the people that Jesus healed did not become immortal. They all died. Poor Lazarus had to die twice. What, you brought me back from the dead, now I have to die again? Yes, you have to die again. So what are the miracles then? They're signs. Sacraments, if you will, of the kingdom. They're signs that Israel's Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the restorer of heaven and earth, keeps faith forever. They're signs that he who promised redemption, who promised healing, who promised a new creation, who promised that sorrow and sighing would flee away, that that one has broken into time and he has set that kingdom in motion. They are signs of the kingdom. They're pointers to the deep healing that will finally come from the reconciliation wrought at the cross. And there's a highly instructive passage in this connection which we read as the gospel lesson today from Mark 2, where Jesus tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And the teachers of the law are thinking, who does this blasphemer think he is? No one is able to forgive sins except for God. And Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk? Now Jesus apparently had no intention of healing this man. But because of the unbelief of the teachers, he says, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and walk home. In other words, Jesus says, the forgiveness of sins is the greater thing. It's the far greater thing. It's harder to say. It's the greater liberation and from which all liberation and restoration flows. The forgiveness of sins entails, in fact, it demands that eventually it is said to every one of us, get up, take your mat, and go home. That's what the general resurrection of the dead is. All you forgiven sinners, get up, take your mat, and go home. But we usually don't get both things now. That's the point. We get one now, the other later. And Jesus did not give everybody both things then. Again, those who were healed still died. He's brought the kingdom, not fully. So he does these miracles, abundant miracles, plenty to be sure. But they're signs, signs that he's the restorer of the world and that he will indeed forever end our oppression, our hunger, our blindness, and our brokenness. That's what these are signs of. So it's important, beloved, to get this right. It means we are not naive. Our faith in this text and in the Advent Lord is not shaken because we still see that there's poverty and oppression in the world. 
The text is not making some sort of naive claim that somehow all poverty and all oppression and all blindness and all sickness will be eliminated. Now. It would be a misreading. Jesus did these things as signs, and the record we have of the signs he did is clear, and it's abundant, and it's reliable. In him, Israel's God is keeping faith forever. And he will eventually abolish these things. Our faith looks back to what Jesus did and says, because he did that, I am confident he will heal and restore the whole creation. He may or may not heal the affliction you currently have. But he will eventually raise you from the dead and say, take up your bed, go home, walk. So, there are two things I think we're called to do by the advent of this God, of this Yahweh who keeps faith forever in this way. And these are things the church has always been engaged in. The first is you should seek to participate in his work. To serve his cause by laboring against oppression and injustice wherever it is found. This has always animated the life of the church by feeding the hungry, by visiting the imprisoned. If you've never done these things, Advent is a good time to start. By lifting up the broken, by embracing the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Jesus' advent unleashed a torrent of healing mercy into this world. And we should find ways to get in the river. Secondly, we must will or resolve. We must determine that we will praise this Lord all of our lives. We must sing. We sing. Silence, especially at Advent, is criminal. And so we say with the psalmist in verse 10, in contrast to the fleeting, impotent princes, the Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Amen.